Section 16 of Come Rack, Come Rope. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. Come Rack, Come Rope by Robert Hugh Benson. Book 2, Chapter 7. Part 1. Marjorie found it curious, even to herself, how the press that faced the foot of the two beds where she and Alice slept side by side became associated in her mind with the thought of Robin, and she began to perceive that it was largely with the thought of him in her intention that the idea had first presented itself of having the cell constructed at all. It was not that in her deliberate mind she conceived that he would be hunted, that he would fly here, that she would save him, but rather in that strange realm of consciousness which is called sometimes the imagination, and sometimes by other names, that inner shadow-show on which move figures cast by the two worlds, she perceived him in this place. It was in the following winter that she was reminded of him by other means than those of his letters. The summer and autumn had passed tranquilly enough so far as this outlying corner of England was concerned. News filtered through of the stirring world outside, and especially was there conveyed to her through Alice, for the most part, news that concerned the fortunes of Catholics. Politics, except in this connection, meant little enough to such as her. She heard indeed from time to time vague rumours of fighting and of foreign powers, and thought now and again of Spain as of a country that might yet be, in God's hands, an instrument for the restoring of God's cause in England. She had heard, too, in this year, of one more rumour of the Queen's marriage with the Duke d'Alessant, and then of its final rupture. But these matters were aloof from her. Rather she pondered such things as the execution of two more priests at York in August, Mr. Lacey and Mr. Kirkman, and of a third Mr. Thompson in November at the same place. It was on such affairs as these that she pondered as she went about her household business or sat in the chamber upstairs with Mistress Alice. And it was of these things that she talked with the few priests that came and went from time to time in their circuits about Derbyshire. It was a life of quietness and monotony inconceivable by those who live in towns. Its sole incident lay in that life which is called interior. It was soon after the new year that she met the squire of Matstead face to face. She and Alice, with Janet and a man riding behind, were on their way back from Derby, where they had gone for their monthly shopping. They had slept at Dethick, and had had news there of Mr. Anthony, who was again in the south on one of his mysterious missions, and started again soon after dawn next day to reach home, if they could, for dinner. She knew Alice now for what she was, a woman of astounding dullness, of sterling character, and of a complete inability to understand any shades or tones of character or thought that were not her own, and yet a friend in a thousand of an immovable stability and loyalty, and one of no words at all, who dwelt in the midst of a steady kind of light which knew no dawn nor sunset. 
the girl entertained herself sometimes with conceiving of her friend confronted with the rack let us say or the gallows and perceived that she knew with exactness what her behaviour would be she would do all that was required of her without speeches or protest she would place herself in the required positions with a faint smile unwavering she would suffer or die with the same tranquil steadiness as that in which she lived and best of all she would not be aware even for an instant that anything in her behaviour was in the least admirable or exceptional she resembled to marjorie's mind that for which a strong and well-built armchair stands in relation to the body it is the same always supporting and sustaining always and cannot even be imagined as anything else it was a brilliant frosty day as they rode over the rutted track between hedges that served for a road that ran for the most part a field or two away from the black waters of the derwent the birches stood about them like frozen feathers the vast chestnuts towered overhead motionless in the motionless air as they came towards matstead and at last rode up the street naturally enough marjorie again began to think of robin as they came near where the track turned the corner beneath the churchyard wall where once robin had watched himself unseen the three riders go by she had to attend to her horse who slipped once or twice on the paved causeway then as she lifted her head again she saw not three yards from her and on a level with her own face the face of the squire looking at her from over the wall she had not seen him except once in derby a year or two before and that at a distance since robin had left england and at the sight she started so violently in some manner jerking the reins that she held that her horse tired from the long ride of the day before slipped once again and came down all the sprawl on the stones fortunately throwing her clear of his struggling feet she was up in a moment but again sank down aware that her foot was in some way bruised or twisted there was a clatter of hooves behind her as the servants rode up a child or two ran up the street and when at last on janet's arm she rose again to her feet it was to see the squire staring at her with his hands clasped behind his back bring the ladies up to the house he said abruptly to the man and then taking the rein of the girl's horse that had struggled up again he led the way without another word without even turning his head round to the way that ran up to his gates part two it was not with any want of emotion that marjorie found herself presently meekly seated upon alice's horse and riding up at a foot's pace beneath the gatehouse of the hall rather it was the balance of emotions that made her so meek and so obedient to her friend's tranquil assumption that she must come in as the squire said she was aware of a strong resentment to his brusque order as well as to the thought that it was to the house of an apostate that she was going yet there was no less strong emotion within her that he had a sort of right to command her these feelings working upon her dazed as she was by the sudden sharpness of her fall and the pain in her foot combined to drive her along in a kind of resignation in the wake of the squire 
still confused, yet with a rapid series of these same emotions running before her mind, she limped up the stairs, supported by Alice and her maid, and sat down on a bench at the end of the hall. The squire, who had shouted an order or two to a peeping domestic, as he passed up the court, came to her immediately with a cup in his hand. "'You must drink this at once, mistress.' She took it at once, drank and set it down, aware of the keen, angry-looking face that watched her. "'You will dine here, too, mistress,' he began, still with a sharp kindness. And then, on a sudden, all grew dark about her, there was a roaring in her ears, and she fainted. She came out of her swoon again after a while, with that strange and innocent clearness that usually follows such a thing, to find Alice beside her, a tapestried wall behind Alice, and the sound of a crackling fire in her ears. Then she perceived that she was in a small room, lying on her back along a bench, and that someone was bathing her foot. "'I, I will not stay here,' she began, but two hands held her firmly down, and Alice's reassuring face was looking into her own. When her mind ran clearly again, she sat up with a sudden movement, drawing her foot away from Janet's ministrations. "'I do very well,' she said, after looking at her foot, and then putting it on the ground amid a duet of protestations. She had looked around the room to satisfy herself that no one else was there, and had seen that it must be the parlour that she was in. A newly lighted fire burned on the hearth, and the two doors were closed. Then Alice explained. It was impossible, she said, to ride on at once. The horse even now was being bathed in the stable, as his mistress in the parlour. The squire had been most considerate. He had helped to carry her in here just now, had lighted the fire with his own hands, and had stated that dinner would be sent in here in an hour for the three women. He had offered to send one of his own men on to Booth's Edge with the news if Mistress Marjorie found herself unable to ride on after dinner. But, but it is Mr. Audrey, exclaimed Marjorie. Yes, my dear, said Alice, I know it is. But that does not mend your foot, she said, with unusual curtness. And Marjorie saw that she still looked at her anxiously. The three women dined together, of course, in an hour's time. There was no escape from the pressure of circumstance. It was unfortunate that such an accident should have fallen out here, in the one place in all the world where it should not. But the fact was a fact. Meanwhile, it was not only resentment that Marjorie felt. It was a strange sort of terror as well, a terror of sitting in the house of an apostate, of one who had freely and deliberately renounced that faith for which she herself lived so completely, and that it was the father of one whom she knew as she knew Robin, with whose fate indeed her own had been so intimately entwined. This combined to increase that indefinable fear that rested on her as she stared round the walls and sat over the food and drink that this man provided. The climax came as they were finishing dinner for the door from the hall opened abruptly, and the squire came in. He bowed to the ladies as the manner was, straightening his trim, tight figure again defiantly, asked a civil question or two, directed a servant behind him to bring the horses to the parlour door in half an hour's time, 
and then snapped out the sentence which he was plainly impatient to speak. Mistress Manners, he said, I wish to have a word with you privately. Marjorie, trembling at his presence, turned a wavering face to her friend. And Alice, before the other could speak, rose up and went out, with Janet following. Janet, cried the girl. If you please, said the old man, with such a decisive air, that she hesitated. Then she nodded at her maid, and a moment later the door closed. Part three. I have two matters to speak of, said the squire abruptly, sitting down in the chair that Alice had left. The first concerns you closely, the other less closely. She looked at him, summoning all her power to appear at her ease. He seemed far older than when she had last spoken with him, perhaps five years ago, and had grown a little pointed beard. His hair, too, seemed thinner, such of it as she could see beneath the house-cap that he wore. His face, especially about his blue, angry-looking eyes, was covered with fine wrinkles, and his hands were clearly the hands of an old man, at once delicate and sinewy. He was in a dark suit, still with his cloak upon him, and in low boots. He sat still as upright as ever, turned a little in his chair so as to clasp its back with one strong hand. "'Yes, sir,' she said. "'I will begin with the second first. It is of my son Robin. I wish to know what news you have of him. He hath not written to me this six months back and I hear that letters sometimes come to you from him. Marjorie hesitated. He is very well, so far as I know, she said. And when is he to be made a priest? he demanded sharply. Marjorie drew a breath to give herself time. She knew that she must not answer this, and did not know how to say so with civility. If he has not told you himself, sir, she said, I cannot. The old man's face twitched, but he kept his manners. I understand you, mistress. But then his wrath overcame him. But he must understand he will have no mercy from me if he comes my way. I am a magistrate now, mistress, and... A thought like an inspiration came to the girl, and she interrupted, for she longed to penetrate this man's armor. Perhaps that is why he did not tell you when he was to be made priest, she said. The other seemed taken aback. Why, but he did not wish to think that his father would be untrue to his new commission, she said, trembling at her boldness and yet exultant too, and taking no pains to keep the irony out of her voice. Again that fierce twitch of the features went over the other's face, and he stared straight at her with narrowed eyes. Then a change came over him, and he laughed, like barking, yet not all unkindly. You are very shrewd, mistress, but I wonder what you will think of me when I tell you the second matter, since you will tell me no more of the first. He shifted his position in his chair, this time clasping both his hands together over the back. Well, it is this in a word, he said. It is that you had best look to yourself, mistress. My lord Shrewsbury even knows of it. Of what, if you please, asked the girl, hoping she had not turned white. Why, of the priests that come and go hereabouts. It is all known, and her grace hath sent a message from the council. What has this to do with me? He laughed again. Well, let us take your neighbors at Padley. 
They will be in trouble if they do not look to their goings. Mr. Fitzherbert. But again she interrupted him. She was determined to know how much he knew. She had thought that she had been discreet enough, and that no news had leaked out of her own entertaining of priests. It was chiefly that discretion which might be preserved that she had set her hands to the work at all. With Padley so near, it was thought that less suspicion would be aroused. Her name had never yet come before the authorities, so far as she knew. But what has all this to do with me, sir? she asked sharply. It is true that I do not go to church, and that I pay my fines when they are demanded. Are there new laws, then, against the old faith? She spoke with something of real bitterness. It was genuine enough. Her only art lay in her not concealing it for she was determined to press her question home, and, in his shrewd, compelling face, she read her answer even before his words gave it. Well, mistress, it was not of you that I meant to speak, so much as of your friends. They are your friends, not mine, and as your friends I thought it to be a kindly action to send them an advertisement. If they are not careful, they will be in trouble. At Padley? At Padley or elsewhere, it is the persons that fall under the law, not places. But, sir, you are a magistrate, and he sprang up, his face aflame with real wrath. Yes, mistress, I am a magistrate. The commission hath come at last, after six months' waiting. But I was friend to the Fitzherberts before ever I was a magistrate, and then she understood, and her heart went out to him. She, too, stood up, catching at the table with a hiss of pain as she threw her weight on the bruised foot. He made a movement toward her, but she waved him aside. "'I beg your pardon, Mr. Audrey, with all my heart. I had thought that you meant harm, perhaps, to my friends and me. But now I see.' "'Not a word more, not a word more,' he cried harshly, with a desperate kind of gesture. "'I shall do my duty none the less when the time comes.' Sir, she cried out suddenly, for God's sake do not speak of duty. There is another duty greater than that, Mr. Audrey. He wheeled away from her with a movement she could not interpret. It might be uncontrolled anger or misery equally, and her heart went out to him in one great flood. Mr. Audrey, it is not too late. Your son Robin. Then he wheeled again, and his faith was distorted with emotion. Yes, my son Robin, my son Robin, how dare you speak of him to me? Yes, that is it, my son Robin, my son Robin. He dropped into the chair again, and his face fell upon his clasped hands. Part 4 She scarcely knew how circumstances had arranged themselves up to the time when she found herself riding away again with Alice, while a man of Mr. Audrey's led her horse. They could not talk freely till he left them at the place where the stony road turned to a soft track, and it was safe going once more. Then Alice told her own side of it. Yes, my dear, I heard him call out. I was walking in the hall with Janet to keep ourselves warm. But when I ran in, he was sitting down, and you were standing. What was the matter? Alice, said the girl earnestly, I wish you had not come in. He is very heartbroken, I think. He would have told me more, I think. It is about his son. His son? Why, he... Yes, I know that. And he would not see him if he came back. He has had his magistrate's commission. 
and he will be true to it. But he is heartbroken for all that. He has not really lost the faith, I think. Why, my dear, that is foolish. He is very hot in Derby, I hear, against the Papists. There was a poor woman who could not pay her fines, and Marjorie waved it aside. Yes, he would be very hot. But for all that, there is his son Robin, you know, and his memories. And Robin has not written to him for six months. That would be about the time when he told him he was to be a magistrate. Then Marjorie told her of the whole that had passed, and of his mention of the Fitzherberts. And what he meant by that, she said, I do not know, but I will tell them. She was pondering deeply all the way as she rode home. Mistress Alice was one of those folks who, so long as they are answered in words, are content. And Marjorie so answered her. And all the while she thought upon Robin and his passionate old father, and attempted to understand the emotions that fought in the heart that had so disclosed itself to her, its aged obstinacy, its loyalty, and its confused honourableness. She knew very well that he would do what he conceived to be his duty with all the more zeal if it were an unpleasant duty. And she thanked God that it was not for a good while yet that the lad would come home a priest. End of Book 2, Chapter 7 Recording by James Carson